0: Still, been so lonesome chasing that morning chill oh little red bird open your mouth and say been so lonesome i just about flown away so long now i've been out in the rain and snow but winter's come and gone and Hello, and welcome to the How I Healed podcast. I am joined today by my co host, Mary Lou Singleton, who is a family nurse practitioner, herbalist, and apprentice trained home birth midwife. She has been caring for the health of New Mexican families for over 25 years. Mary Lou believes all healthcare modalities, from allopathic medicine to energy work and everything in between, have healing potential. That healing is always an individual journey to be supported by community, and that when it comes to healing, effectiveness is the measure of the truth. She is a critic of the pharmaceutical industry and the mainstream medical industry, which promotes drug dependence and chronic disease maintenance rather than healing. She believes healing is always possible and co-created the How I Healed podcast to share stories of healing, hope, and recovery.
1: Thanks, Jocelyn. I'm Mary Lou, and I'm here with my lovely co-host, Jocelyn McDonald, who is an artist and storyteller. She is enlivened by the infinite potential of humans to heal and helps others walk this path through her art and music. Her healing practice focuses on making and finding meaning out of the crises and major choice points of our lives. She offers one-on-one support through coaching and archetypical astrology and tarot. She specializes in assisting with psychedelic integration and pharmaceutical cessation.
0: Welcome back to How I Healed podcast. On today's episode, we are talking with Olivia Ballard. She is a storyteller, musician, and childhood development specialist, passionate about clearing the path so that children are heard, preparing their environment so their inherent autonomy and power is known. Olivia, I'm so happy to have you on our podcast. I first found out about you through everyone on this show's mutual friend, Isabella Melvin, whose show, Whose Body Is It?, is uh, much beloved by all of us. And you had shared your story on themes of transgender and non-binary identification, liberal feminism, And the aphorisms that go with it, sex work is work, and all of these things that we know to be fallacious and empty sloganeering, and your incredible grace and power in surviving and now transmuting everything that you went through really inspired me. And of course, we had to become friends after that. And now we talk on the phone all the time. Of course. <laughs> yes. And you're also good friends with Mary Lou. So it is so good to have us all on the same channel today. I'm really excited to be
2: here. Okay. <laughs>
0: yeah. So let's dive in.
2: So I was born in the South, spent the first four years of my life in Mississippi. We were all homeschooled, my oldest sister, all the way through to the end of high school. And then I started more conventional schooling in eighth grade. When I was five, we moved to Texas. I was brought up in a really religious environment within the LDS or the more commonly known as Mormon Church. A lot of the stories that get told from people who have left the church are understandably very bitter. And that was definitely my story for several years. But I now have a greater understanding of the ways that the church protected me and my family and the ways that the traditions brought me so much closer to my ancestors than a lot of my peers were. I had a very sure knowledge that I come from very strong women and that really safeguarded my my whole life. At the same time, there are so many complicated factors of growing up in the LDS church. I think that they're factors that all of us deal with to some degree because all of us are living within a patriarchal, sexist, misogynistic, etc. lens. And I think that at times the church can get too harshly judged for simply existing within that lens. The context in which I grew up in was a very interesting cultural moment for the church. I got to spend so much time with other girls and women which I loved. I just felt so safe and protected, made aware of my inherent gifts and that not only did I have gifts because I was simply born a female, but I had been given gifts that were unique to me from our heavenly parents. That doctrine was incredibly sacred and still is very special to me in my spiritual practice. Anytime I did try to bring up Heavenly Mother, I was shut down pretty fast. Yeah. All of that being said, I had a really wonderful childhood. I mean, there were things that were hurtful and hard. My parents didn't have a lot of emotional regulation resources. And I remember getting yelled at. My dad inherited like a a rageaholic pattern from his dad. But a really healing aspect of my childhood was watching my dad transmute that. A story that is really relevant to my healing from being trafficked is that my great grandma, Naomi, in the mid-30s, she had two kids and the man she was married to was extremely abusive, an abusive alcoholic. She packed up everything that they owned, little red wagon, and walked from their marital home to her parents' home and they took her in. She divorced him, and shortly after she arrived back to her parental home, her husband tried to come and collect them. Naomi's father was to stand out on the porch with his shotgun, say, if you ever come here again, I'll blow your head off. (laughs) I attribute uh, having a pretty solid sense of self in my early teens to growing up in that environment. Then when I went to charter school, my sense of self was definitely shaken. I became really aware of the social need to fit in. You know, at first I was friends with similarly minded like Christian people. And then my sophomore year, I started to realize that I was also attracted to women and that just completely blew everything apart. I realized that I didn't really have as much of a home in my religion of upbringing as I thought I did. I also became really overcome by this desire to please my friends. And according to my mom, I've always had a pretty strong people-pleasing streak. Quiet, but sweet, cooperative kid. So I slowly, but also in hindsight, really quickly just started to change, started to become more willing to lie to my parents, Um, you know, started like smoking cigarettes behind their back and drinking occasionally, smoking weed, and began to abandon the religious convictions that I had and just became pretty swept up in rebellious kid culture, which makes a lot of sense. I think like teens need to rebel and – I think if they're given a lot to rebel against, then there might be a significantly more dramatic shift. And um, at the same time, I really didn't know a lot about gender ideology. I was on Tumblr and I had a few exposures to it, like my friend group was obsessed with RuPaul's Drag Race and I was very viscerally affronted by it. I felt so uncomfortable when we would watch it as a friend group. Not only are there like extremely misogynistic realities within that show and within that realm, but it's also really racist and crude and just... There was a tone of self-mutilation to it. Another experience was I had a friend that I had met on Tumblr and she was also a lesbian. I really strongly identified as a lesbian in high school. She posted on Tumblr one day, like, I'm not, no, I'm, I'm not attracted to penises. I'm a lesbian. So no, I would not have sex with a quote unquote trans woman. And she got so harassed and bullied for that. And I remember defending her and also getting harassed for it and then mentioning it to my best friend at the time, and she just got really quiet. That's the moment that it became clear to me that I either get with the program, so to speak, or I would lose the relationships that I was so attached to. And then it came time to choose college, and I was set Dead against going to BYU, which is what my parents wanted me to do. For anybody who doesn't know, BYU is an LDS school. I instead chose to go to a really liberal school in South Central Texas. Immediately, I noticed that the social environment was kicked way up 10 billion notches on the gender ideology. Not just that, but this like sexual promiscuity was the norm and highly encouraged. If it wasn't participated in, there was like something wrong with you. I just submitted myself to the whirlwind of that. Started partying. And I now strongly believe that 18-year-olds should not move away from home unless there's a really clear reason to move away from home. And I wish that I had not. But I also respect that everything I've experienced has culminated into the path that I'm on now. And I have so much love and affection for the path that I'm on. So much gratitude to my creator for putting me through the fires that I was put through, because I wouldn't be myself without them. Pretty soon into ha- into college, I started thinking about ways to make money. And the talk of the town was like, you can just e- you can just even hang out with these older guys, and they'll give you like $600 for hangout which is highly exaggerated, a total bait and switch that is so
0: dangerous for, to program. For listeners who've never heard of this, the, the thing you're talking about is Sugar Baby yes. or Sugar Daddy or yeah. Seeking Arrangements, which yeah. is an app or a website. Uh-huh. So.
2: Yeah. Well, and that app was literally advertised to me. That's disgusting. When you're yeah. 18. Yeah, I was 18. Mm-hmm. Barely legal. So I, I, exactly, but just legal enough. Oh yeah, just it just is chilling actually to remember the kind of mentality that I had that and the lack of self-respect that I had. So instead of like going and getting a nannying job, I believed that it, would be the same, the same impact on my mental, physical, holistic health to, to do this thing that was a total and utter abandonment and betrayal of myself and my self-worth.
1: Olivia, was that the messaging that, that was being given to you and to other women on your campus? Oh yeah. There's, there's no, there's no difference between selling your your time and labor at a coffee shop versus mm-hmm. selling sex to to men you don't know and don't who don't love you. Of course,
2: mm-hmm. 100% and not just the selling our bodies through sex, like I remember egg donation donation in large quotes mm-hmm. was advertised to me on my laptop while I was doing homework and on my Instagram feed while I was scrolling that you know, this commodification of young women's bodies and women's bodies in general was completely normalized. Past the point of normalization, it was glorified. You can pay for a whole semester and more by selling 10 eggs
0: hmm Exactly. Yeah there's no there's no better way for there's no there's no larger amount of money or quicker way to make money as a woman of that age mm-hmm. than to sell your reproductive capacity.
1: Mm-hmm. And you're selling your fertility. They don't tell you that premature ovarian failure is a risk yeah. of hyperstimulating the ovaries. What I've been seeing torsion, losing your ovaries, what I've been seeing now are ads because of pushing delayed childbearing as though that's, and that, that is an empowering thing for women too. And with that, they're normalizing that you will be infertile and not be able to conceive your own children. So I've been seeing these ads that you can freeze your own eggs for free. If you give half of them to the market to be sold
2: that is some dystopian nightmare that's just not and now i can't comprehend how that doesn't stand out as terrifying mm-hmm. to to everyone in the population but when i like seek to have compassion for who i was then i can understand the position that i was in and i can also take responsibility for the fact that in my case i was looking for quick what i perceived as more convenient ways to make money like my perception was i could make $200 in a week of part time nannying that works with my college schedule or i could make $600 in one night with a man
0: yeah in the interest of having compassion for little baby 18 year old olivia too you know you had mentioned that you had left home and you were raised in a very sheltered environment comparatively and while there were there was room in, within your religion for the divine mother and other expressions of divine femininity that were truly counter to the dominant patriarchal paradigm in other ways it was extremely patriarchal and in, in, in one of the key ways being that your at that time lesbian identity bisexual, you know, reality, whatever. We want to um, differentiate between behavior, attraction, and identity is irrelevant. You you are functionally not straight. (laughs) And it would have been impossible for you to be sexually fulfilled or sexually experimenting the way that normal 18-year-old women would if you were at home in an environment where it would be completely anathema to your parents to see you
1: mm-hmm.
0: being being a lesbian. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wouldn't, uh, you know, as I'm hearing this, I'm just hearing like the ways in which it was completely unrealistic for you to have stayed at home given all that you were expanding into. And as a young bisexual myself, when I was 18, a, a huge part of me picking the college that I b- did pick and after graduation, picking the city that I picked after that was the opportunity to be gay without my parents judging me or even knowing Mm -hmm. about it. And Mm -hmm. because I also grew up in an extremely religious background too, I had no access to my own desire at that point in my life. Like I had to have that distance from the family constellation in, in order to even sense for the first time, okay, what is my desire and what is, what was told to me is acceptable for women in the church. And then what is being told to me is acceptable for women through a pornified culture. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: I, I feel like what you're both describing and I lived my own, my own version of that coming from a very religious Catholic family having to explore all the forbidden world that had i've just been told don't even engage with any of that it's evil and bad i think it's the female version of the hero's journey and the the odyssey of we have to go to these foreign lands and experience these situations that look appealing alluring and then you're you're trapped on the island with the the you know the sex demon our case, and, and you have to figure out your way back home and you're changed mm-hmm. but you know home is where you want to be mm-hmm. so we're all delivering our female version of the odyssey through this experience. Mm-hmm. and how do we tell the tale in a way how do we create the mythical landscape so other women don't have to suffer in the same way but they can still find their own truth and power and not just be handed our version of dogma that for them mm-hmm. to ingest like they have to find themselves through it but how can we make the path more clear and less perilous for them mm-hmm.
0: perilous, God, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: i love the way that myth gives us something to
2: grasp onto. to like in, in the odyssey there was this prophecy that he would be returned to his family and that the more i can revisit those places like i i still live adjacent to the city that all of this happened in and the more that i go back to my favorite magnolia tree that i would clutch onto while in the grips of healing from this and reach back through time and hold my own hand the better equipped i feel to listen to young women to offer my my guidance when it's asked for i love that you mentioned the hero's journey because when i was exiting prostitution my counselor told me that she said you are on your hero's journey and what you're doing is essential to the rest of your life and you owe it to yourself to to follow through to keep going step after step and recognize that there is this herculean strength inside you that your stubbornness kept you alive and that you're here for a reason so on I think that's
0: a great segue to get us back into where we left off in your actual, in your actual story, which was that you had basically just gotten into the sugar baby slash seeking arrangement, um, Mm -hmm. way of, of, um, Quote unquote, working since sex work right. is work. <laughs> so, when did you begin to uh, uh, disidentify with womanhood, start identifying as non binary?
2: So, that started happening after the end of my sophomore year of college. So, there's this whole other like, I remember Mary Lou listening to your episode, how you're, you described healing from asthma. And then that there, there were so many other healing realms of your life and, and spheres that you walked through. Um, one experience that I can relate to in that is that my sophomore year, I was prescribed SSRIs and that played a significant role in me feeling divorced from my body.
1: Were you given a psych diagnosis and, and also did you identify with that diagnosis?
2: Yes. And yes. <laughs> I like identified with it to a, a a martyrdom degree, which was also really common in my social environment. This romanticization of depression and anxiety and being suicidal, which I will say that in high school, I had a lot of anxiety, which was directly related to knowing that I was, in Jocelyn's terms, functionally not straight. Just something that I plan on continuing to use, knowing that I was not straight and having to lie to my parents about it. I wasn't like officially out to my parents until my senior year of high school. So there were three years in which I was like just anxiously hiding myself from my family. While I was anxious, I was not really ever depressed. At the same time, I was receiving these messages of, like, teenagers are naturally depressed. Like, all teenagers get depressed, which I know is not true. Depression and not wanting to live within something that is not human is a natural response. What we call depression is a natural, understandable response to not being allowed to live as a teenage human needs to live, i.e. getting more sleep. Being outside... and not sitting down for eight hours of the day. So then in college, that is the first time when I moved away from home that I started to experience what would be diagnosed as depression. This is also super connected to like, college was the first time that I could smoke weed more than like twice a year. Because in high school, I was so careful for my parents not to find out anything that I was doing. My high school friends and I still talk about it, That just the like 007 bullshit that I was pulling in order to like smoke weed and spend the night at my friend's house, (laughs) you know, (laughs) moving away to college, that also felt important for me to be able to like fuck around and find out, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? So yeah, I started like smoking cigarettes all the time and I would like roll my own. So I thought I was really cool. (laughs) That also definitely contributed to like a chemical Imbalance in my brain, not just chemical imbalance. I have since learned that cannabis, when smoked regularly, leaches the minerals from our bones. So I was, you know, eating crappy dorm food and convenience store food, smoking weed. Then my sophomore year, I just lost a lot of motivation to continue in my classes. Almost all of my friends were on antidepressants. They were talking about how much they had helped. Them And it was so normalized. I I get to take responsibility and say that I didn't do my due diligence of researching the possible effects of SSRIs. And I also can acknowledge that my psychiatrist did not do his due diligence of communicating the possible effects. He started me off on a really high dose. All the while, like, I'm being shoveled this like gender ideology, like respect my pronouns. I had founded a STEM LGBTQ group. With some STEM friends and we had like undergone this training, learning how to redirect our mental tracks into not just addressing someone, but conceptualizing them as the gender they were telling us they were. So like learning how to edit your mind. Yeah, edit your mind. Like delete copy paste, you know? Yeah. Wow. That's
0: amazing. Yeah. So, you know, that, that combination of dissociating from your body, because you're not outside, you're not exercising, you're smoking a ton of weed, which is literal dissociative and you're taking SSRIs all while being fed the idea that you can edit your own thoughts to Mm
2: -hmm.
0: project a an an image of a person whether or not you see it yeah. so now you're doing that inside your own brain you're mm-hmm. your delete mm-hmm. copy pasting where there was a woman there is now a human a, a just completely fluid individual mm-hmm. collection or a of personality man. traits yeah Ooh, even a man, man.
2: oh like especially and I met and you and sh- your sh-
0: identification
2: oh and my identification yeah yeah, yeah. um so that started after I had an extremely terrifying experience with the SSRIs where I went completely manic while on them. It was so scary. And then I told my psychiatrist that I wanted to get off them and he simply gave me instructions for weaning off nothing else. And mind you, this is also over the summer, So all of our correspondence is like over email. We didn't have any in-person appointments. Um, which I can also take responsibility for and say, like I should have taken more initiative over my own health. Olivia, and you can could also, have died. Like I know,
0: you I know. could have died.
2: I you almost could have gone
0: did. into psychosis. You
2: could have had aphasia and killed yourself. <laughs> yeah, no, I did try. I actually did try to kill myself after I started to withdraw, and it was like the most bizarre, terrifying experience I've ever had, like full-on images of what I could do to end my life, just like flooding my brain constantly. I lost so much weight, couldn't get out of bed. And my parents were understandably so freaked out and they couldn't understand what was going on, which I also like, I, I still feel this pain of why is there not support for families and this why did my psychiatrist not say here's what your parents need to know and what they need to watch for
1: none of that was communicated no. instead there's a social messaging of those psychiatric symptoms of withdrawal from the ssris are proof that you really were very depressed and, and you need to go back on the drugs That's the messaging we get in medicine. That's the messaging I see out in, in the community that it's, it's not your nervous system is withdrawing from these very strong chemicals that have been changing Mm -hmm. your neurochemistry and you're having what are very uh, common side uh, withdrawal effects from that. No, it's like, Oh, see, it's more proof that you had a chemical imbalance. So you need to go back on the drugs. Mm -hmm.
2: She's depressed. Mm -hmm. She's manic depressive, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, there
0: was an opportunity for you to, identi- to disidentify as female to soothe some of the dissociation or maybe match some of the dissociation mm-hmm, that was going yeah, on. Yeah, of course. And, and that really started- Is concurrent with the sugar babying? Like, yes. Is this
2: the same time? Yeah. So there's also
0: that dissociation. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, and actually the time when I was really like, amped up on the SSRIs was when I did the most sugar babying. That's like when I put myself in harm's way into the lion's den. And I didn't really start not identifying as a woman until like I was dealing with the after effects of the suicide attempt and just could not find my way home to my body and was like, I guess I'm just not anything. I guess I'm just a non-binary amorphous nothing person I don't belong to any class sex you know because trying to kill myself was so traumatizing I I ended up taking an entire bottle of sleeping pills like I, I I can remember the state of mind that I was in but I know that that was not me that it was a result of the way my brain had been changed from chemicals and the conflict that was in my family after I was hospitalized was, this is Olivia. Olivia's asking for attention, bait and switching us. It was so hard. And it was really hard for my dad particularly to understand what had happened to my brain. And then I, after moved in with my aunt and uncle and... It was really difficult for me and my father to talk to each other. We didn't talk to each other for several months. And several months after that, I was actually diagnosed with celiac, which now when I look at it from a German new medicine perspective, gluten being the father makes so much sense that my body just like was presenting this physical rejection. I mean, I would get so sick when I tried to eat gluten of this relationship to the father and was telling me you have so much healing to do here. You had
0: this horrible experience with the SSRIs and the withdrawal experience. You had the simultaneously with the height of your sugar babying experience. This is not yet when you were involved in trafficking?
2: Not yet, no. The okay, I mean, cool. the, the height of the sugaring and then the dissociation from my body, the ostracization from my parents... All of that was the domino effect into me having no contact with my immediate family, coming back to the city, meeting the man who would eventually traffic me. So I can, I just see the the mythic landscape of the setup to being so vulnerable to uh, completely abandoning myself and ignoring the messages from my body that were
0: really clear. You had strong voices from your body as to how to maintain your own sense of integrity physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And yet by this time, you were so broken down and with so few allies and so few ties to your family Mm -hmm. of origin that you were... In a pretty suggestible state, where yes, yeah. anyone could basically influence you and say, "I'm your daddy
2: now." Essentially, yeah, like, yeah. I'm well, gonna and take I, care of you. Uh huh. I craved that. Like I wanted someone who saw my gifts and who take control. Like I wanted mm-hmm. someone else to call the shots and make the decisions because I was just so tired. And then at that point, came back to the city that I had gone to school in. And started in OnlyFans, met a man who coerced me into believing, he he brainwashed me into believing that he was my manager and... He was your pimp. He was my pimp. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that culminated, that all came to a head in this particular experience that involved my girlfriend at the time. And that was my wake-up call, like this... Seeing someone outside of me so close to the teeth of what I was involving myself in. That was the moment when I really woke up and knew that if I didn't do what was necessary to take back the reins of my life, then I could die, the people I loved could die or get really hurt. And so I became involved with a local organization called safe, a particular program within called cares and they help women to exit prostitution. Um, I say their name now so that anybody listening who's in a similar situation knows there are many organizations out there who are adept in giving women the resources to get out of this. Through CARES, I was given an incredible counselor who was this like late 60s hippie Jungian analyst. (laughs) And she was the um, catalyst into me coming home to my womanhood and my body. She taught me how to hold my womb and my cervix and to talk to my body softly and to to recognize that I am my body and that it had been necessary for me to leave to protect myself, but now I could start coming home. And she she gave me the, the great perspective that my empathy had been abused, that this man had used his knowledge that I cared deeply for children. He had a baby girl and he also had a prison record. And this was in the summer of 2020 when the political landscape around black men particularly and the police system that it was so frenetic the uh, landscape around that and my empathy for him having been a formally incarcerated single dad was completely abused and then I went home for a couple of months and started to just like come back into softness with my dad, particularly. And my cousin was staying with my parents at the time. She lives in Scotland, usually. And um, she's my best friend in the whole world. And she and I have not always had an easy relationship by any means. And it's because she's always been honest with me. Um, And she was really honest with me before and after that time. She was the person who pointed out like, These SSRIs are making you someone who you're not. And yeah, he was not your manager. He was your pimp. I just spent like several months at home resting with her and, you know, like hanging out with my parents. We went to Florida together in February. I could I could feel myself coming back into my skin for the first time with the warmth and the wet in the air. And I realized that I still had more like differentiating to do and actualizing. And I decided that I needed to do it back in the city that I had experienced all of that in, in December, right before I went to stay with my parents. This was the experience that pushed me to go stay with my parents. I was still really locked into a trauma bond with the man who pimped me out. And he was also still supplying me drugs. That was something in our dynamic was that he was constantly giving me as much weed as he could, which I'm grateful that it wasn't anything stronger. But weed is a powerful dissociative, especially the way that the plant is bred now. Even after I had exited trafficking, I was still seeing him occasionally And he would give me weed and then he would do whatever he wanted with me physically. This particular experience in December of 2020 was the last time that I ever saw him. He had me on top, was being very violent with me, penetrating me very forcefully. Then he put his hands around my neck and started to strangle me. And I felt a rush of strength come through my body. And I ripped his hands away and began to scowl at him. And he said, you didn't like that, did you? And I really sweetly and naively said, no, I want us to breathe and have beautiful lives and to be happy. And he looked me in the eyes and said, I want you dead. And I, like, it felt like everything, every lie that I had told myself about this man's place in my life was stripped away. And I was just hovering in shock, like I couldn't fathom the reality of this man's heart and spirit that he could feel that way about me. And I felt my great-grandma, Naomi, come in to my body. And she laid her hands over mine and put her head around the crook of my neck. Like you might do if you're holding a baby on your lap. And she covered me in her safety and her warmth. And her strength. And she told me exactly what I needed to say to get out alive. And I never saw him again. She has ushered me into every step that I've taken since then to reclaim my body and take ownership of my life and my decisions. And during a time in which, I I mean, like, I can get so impatient with myself in my healing process. I can tell myself all of these lies of, oh, it was one or two or three years ago and become so frustrated with the place that I'm at. Like, since then, I've had periods of constant flashbacks or nightmares or... Just needing a lot of rest, not being able you to work.
0: You, yeah, you said you also had gotten rashes and eczema too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that really manifested itself last winter, about a year ago. Um, and so I've gone through this pattern since then, which makes a lot of sense of like in the spring and summer, I feel more energized. I feel like there's a lot of catalytic healing work happening. But then in the fall, in the winter, I really need to slow down. And I feel this like deep that hand gesture. Exactly, yeah, just cu- like going Curling inside, inward mm-hmm. and really needing to rely on the support and grace and generosity of the people who love me. You know, returning home to my parents was part of that. And just resting and, you know, picking up odd jobs here and there to pay my rent because I, I was still in a lease actually living with my ex-girlfriend, the one who had been in that situation with me. And so then when I came back to Austin after staying with my parents, it was in the spring and I was working a job where I was outside all day long. Actually, I was working, <laughs> this is really funny, I was working the vaccine pop-up clinics. I
1: know, Jocelyn, you're <laughs> wow
2: (laughs) that's so funny I know and I was really at the beginning of my like realizing I really don't think like I never got the vaccine they would ask me every day like do you want to like there's room for employees to get it and I'd be like no (laughs) I don't think I do that was really at the beginning of my learning and realizing that they were not congruent with the natural healing process of our bodies and simultaneously, it allowed me to like have a direct window into the lives of people getting the vaccine. I worked at this drive through location. So I literally got to see like inside their cars as they were like, you know, going through and, and to just feel the fear that was in the air while I was coming into this like, oh, I'm back in my power. Like I'm coming home to my womanhood and recognizing that i am a woman and that this experience was so much about the violence directed towards women by men colonized by patriarchy at the same time like everybody around me being like well you better get the vaccine like you can't actually trust your body to fend off this illness saying no every day when they asked me to was such an important part of healing from this because I was saying no to something entering my body that was not allowed in, that did not belong there. I was learning how to navigate conversations around like, well, why not? And that gave me the strength to enter conversations around, well, why is sex work not like regular work? And why do you no longer identify as non-binary? I actually had a conversation with my friend right before I went home to stay with my parents, right before I was spending all this time with my cousin who was like telling me when women's spaces are eradicated, women's safety is at risk. And right before I was in that environment, I talked with a friend who was like, yeah, I used to identify as non-binary. And then I realized that it was a lot of my internalized misogyny just like unresolved and that that was like oh (laughs) who knew you were surrounded by all these base
1: women i know like i think this way because i hate myself (laughs) like (laughs) yeah or Um, i i want or women are mistreated and i don't feel i don't identify as someone who should be mistreated so i must be a woman
2: exactly Exactly. And like that was that was the protection that I felt the non-binary identity gave me when I was within trafficking was I feel like I can't be touched this way. I'm not meant to be touched this way. And so I'm not this class of people who you tell me are
1: touched this way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have a question about pharmaceuticals and, you know, along with the, the cannabis and the SSRIs were you suppressing your fertility with hormonal contraception during this time too?
2: No. Wow. No.
1: Yeah. I was,
0: um, a I mean, I'm glad that you were not suppressing your fertility because right, I think that hormonal right. birth control is horrible for women, but I'm mm-hmm. just shocked that uh, in all these trafficking experiences, you didn't conceive. I'm so grateful that I know. That, that didn't yeah. happen to you because, like it's not bad enough to be raped and Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. I think that I, I struggle to actually claim this because I by no means wish to imply that women who do conceive when they are raped are not protected by their ancestors but my experience with my path is that my matrilineal line kept me from conceiving at that time, yeah. I don't think and that. They,
0: yeah, I don't think that needs to be taken as a projection on anybody else. I mean, you're mm-hmm. that's just your experience. You you have a a felt sense that your matrilineal line mm-hmm. has been guiding you and protecting you throughout this.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and that other yeah, women are I think, being
0: abandoned by their line.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> exactly the the thing that I don't want to imply. Yeah, I
0: yeah. Don't think um,
2: is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and and then I think getting deeper into the healing part of it, while I was working this job, I was living in the apartment with my ex-girlfriend. She and I barely talked, which was actually really good for me because she was still doing sugaring and it was just really painful to interact, but it meant that I got to spend a lot of time alone. A huge part of my coming back into my body was dancing and listening to music and I had these like colored lights and I'd set them to red and just like I slept on the floor because I was just in this place of needing to feel animal, needing to feel like I was in the womb all the time. And I was brought by divine providence into a relationship with Mary, the mother at that time. And I was at a friend's house, like just looking at her bookshelf. We had just had a sleepover. You know, she'd like read my tarot cards. And in the morning, I was just looking at her bookshelf, and this title popped out to me. It was called The Way of the Rose. Mm by Clark Strand and Perdita Finn. And I was like, this is just really calling my name. Can I borrow it? And she said, it's yours. I just gobbled it up. I remember getting to the second to last page and feeling this deep grief because the book was almost over. I would go on a walk to the park near my apartment with my headphones. You know, it was spring in central Texas, which is just gorgeous. And I would lay with my belly on the earth and read that book and count the fingers on my hand while I prayed the rosary. You know, I'd, I'd put my book down and then just lay with my belly on the earth and my heart in the dirt and just pray around and around through the circle. That was so reassuring to me knowing that. I could get through it. I didn't have to get around it. I could go through it. Mm. And I would lay like that until I could hear the heartbeat of the earth. I just felt so loved and protected. At the same time, I was getting really into Kung Fu Cha Tea practice. There's a really wonderful like, tea house in my area. And I was spending a lot of time there starting to pour tea. I loved how graceful it felt. And I was also hearing a lot about Guan Yin the Chinese goddess of compassion. And I just was feeling um, this acceleration of, this is exactly where I'm meant to be. And these things happened so that I could be brought right into the lap of this divine feminine Sophia wisdom of Guan Yin and Mary the mother, however we want to talk about her. And I was actually asked to pour tea at the event this event that was a a card deck launch for a woman in our community they're called like the sovereign sovereign cards or something and they were all i am statements i was pouring tea at this event and all of the women at the event were talking about mary the mother and mary magdalene and i just remember this mythic cloud lifting me up while i sat in front of all these women like you know, pouring their tea. (laughs) The event ended and I, I approached the two women who had hosted the event. And I said, I really want to learn about Mary Magdalene. Can you teach me and what resources can I go to to learn about her? And I will never forget this. The woman who ran the event, her name is Luna Love. So she, when I said, you know, what book, I said specifically, what books can I read? To, to learn about her. I'd already finished Way of the Rose and I was just in it. I was also, this is a notable mention, listening voraciously to the podcast medicine stories. I mm. like could not get enough. <laughs> there were like, you know, dozens of episodes at that point And I was just, I would listen to them to go to sleep. You know, mm. she helped me learn that the plants were calling me and that they had always been calling me. So Luna looked at me and she said, for all of the books that are, have been written and all of the texts that have been translated, there is no clearer knowledge that you can have of Mary Magdalene than your own body. And I just started crying. Like I, I was sat on the floor with these two women, one of them like in her mother years, one, another in her crone years, and they were holding me on either side and i just knew that i it had not been senseless violence that i had a knowledge in my body of falling into chaos and then reclaiming my divinity because it had never been lost it could never be touched then you know fast forward to the winter time that was all experienced in the summer winter time i've come home again i just need to chill And my aunt on my mom's side reaches out to my mom and says, I don't know why I'm saying this, but I was praying today. And I just need to offer if Olivia needs to come stay on my farm, she is welcome for as long as she needs to be here. And I took the leap of staying on the farm with my aunt Leslie, who is still like a very devout LDS woman. And that felt like a huge leap because it was like, I was still pretty at odds with the faith of my childhood, but I felt ready to like learn how to coexist with it and learn how to navigate with respect because I loved my aunt so much. And I also knew that this is what I needed. So I began taking care of the horse, the chickens, turkeys, ducks, and, you know, just falling into a similar pattern of like going outside with the sunrise and putting my feet in the dirt, you know, like making my teas and talking to my 17-year-old cousin Emma about plants. And we would just like cook and sing. It was so wholesome. At the same time, I I needed it because I was having constant full body flashbacks. And I needed this grounding ritual, not just grounding, but like ripping me back into my body. You know, like you can't be out of your body when you're dealing with a uh, a year old horse, mm. you know. Like they'll send the present that. moment. Yeah, yeah, and they'll mess you up. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and so I was, you know, just living and working at my aunt's farm, and I was also driving like an hour into the city a couple times a month to go babysit my little cousins. That was really important. I was at my aunt and uncle's house one day, Um, not my aunt whose farm I lived on. I uh, was at the little cousin's house. I had just finished babysitting them. The parents had come home. My aunt had gone to bed and it was just me and my uncle. And I started to have a full body flashback of that particular moment. That I described earlier. It was just gripping me. I couldn't feel my way out of it. All of the tools that I had been working on, nothing was working. And he asked me, you know, "Do you want to hold some ice?" <laughs> like, you know, he was giving me offerings, and then I said, "I need to go outside." And it was in January, so it was really cold. And he and I went outside and we sat in the dirt, crisscross facing each other. I couldn't see anything besides the flashback. And so I closed my eyes. I was still seeing it. And I just leaned into my uncle. And for context, my uncle is like still, at that time, he was still a practicing Mormon. And within Mormonism, the men are given the keys of the priesthood. It's doctrine that all of us have the priesthood, but men are specifically given the keys. And I've actually asked my leaders recently, like, are men given the keys because women already have them? <laughs> and my leaders, have, a lot of them have responded with like, you know, <laughs> I think you might be onto something there because birth is a very Christ-like experience. You give your blood to your children. So anyway, this particular instance, I was having this flashback. I leaned into my uncle. He put his hand on my forehead. And within my closed eyes, where I was previously seeing flashbacks, everything went dark. I saw at the center of these radiating rings of light within the dark, I saw myself as a baby. And I not only saw myself, I felt that I was a baby. On either side, I felt flooded by two presences, two distinct, but I knew that they were joined presences. And I knew immediately that they were Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene and they were holding me and they were giving birth to me. I felt just like suffused with this unconditional compassion and love, stillness, just this, it was like the the cold winter air that we were in. It was like it had entered every cell, just completely still. It wasn't like I heard it. It was like they spoke it into each particle of my body, they said, you are whole child. This pursuit of alchemy and of knowing them and coming home to them was made perfectly clear that I had already been in it, that I'd always been whole, that they had always been with me. And I still, I find myself pulling back to that moment all the time when I just need to understand compassion and and why I'm here. I opened my eyes and I I felt exhausted, but I felt clear. And I just looked in my uncle's eyes and I said, when am I going to be able to tell this story? How am I going to be able to tell this story and not bury it in shame? And he said, you'll tell it when you're ready.
1: And now here I am. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing this incredibly powerful story of healing. That's so important for where we are culturally and where womanhood is right now. So thank you for walking this healing path, Olivia, and being a, a lighthouse for other women to know that healing is possible.
2: Thank you, Mary Lou. I'm really grateful that you all have decided to embark on this this sea of hearing people's stories. I know that story is medicine. I know that, that when women share our hearts and our, our lives with each other, that real magic and and shifts in the fabric of time happen and i know i mentioned the um power of the rose and i think the other plant that i i need to mention before we go is datura and that um datura walked with me through all of this through dreams through being able to walk to all the different bushes of datura you know on my work breaks and helping me right Mm-hmm. A, to deter the moonflower yeah and it's to also, to teach me how to give death yeah mm-hmm.
0: cuz yeah. it's not you're not supposed to t- consume it cuz it's it can, well can,
2: they right? say they say but when prepared in specific ways actually i think particularly people the varietal that grows near where i live originated near where my ancestors are from and so you know i'm not going to go out and tell people like Eat a blossom. But, like, you know, I think I particularly started working with her essence first, which was a really extremely powerful way, or even just gathering a blossom and putting it beneath my pillow when I sleep, or in a bowl of water next to my head when
1: I sleep. Well, and the dried leaves, in my experience, if you have the dried leaves and have a powder of them, are incredible for extreme panic. If you put someone in a bath Mm. and just put a couple of pinches of the Datura in there, it will bring someone back to the moment. It will do that, that soul retrieval work. If, if that piece of you that's been left behind in that experience is living that experience, the Datura will snap you back into the moment Mm. and bring you here.
2: I love that. I I've experienced that firsthand. Yeah. Just just sitting next to the leaves. I, I would sit next to the leaves in my aunt's garden a lot when when
1: in that time of life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna encourage anyone to take it in yes. me, but I'll encourage no. everyone to bury their face in a Datura flower and make a <laughs> big, big inhalation. Mm-hmm. It's so
0: beautiful. It's I so my sweet. favorite flower is morning glory. So whenever I mm-hmm. see Jimson, I'm like, oh, sp- Spicy morning glory,
2: <laughs> big it's big like mama morning so glory. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So
0: I feel like you know we are wrapping up, but I want to tie this up in a bow and just because this story has been all over the place. You are 24 years old.
2: Yes, you yeah. are
0: 24 years old, and you're we started at at the at your birth, and we covered yeah. you healing religious trauma, dissociation from your female body, an addiction to cannabis,
2: mm-hmm. a
0: dependency on SSRIs. Gender. Gen- yeah, g- gender disassociation and a um, becoming completely disconnected from your own sexuality and, and allowing yourself to be like in someone else's se- sexual, not suggestibility, but coercion. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. sis i mean you (laughs) came here to heal you just (laughs) got it all and you're only 24 i'm so (laughs) proud of you i'm so impressed by you the jocelyn the yeah that's like the courage with which you have approached this and I, it was kind of annoying me no offense but it was kind of annoying me because you were like so insistent upon taking Accountability and responsibility for all of your actions throughout, and I was like, <laughs> "Bitch, none of this is none of this is your fault."
2: I know, I know for a fact I that, that none of this is my you. fault. You know, yes. and I also I really believe in the power, the healing power of taking yes. responsibility. Yes. Like and you are not it, a victim. Yeah. No, which is great because as a yeah. Pisces
0: sun, I know, <laughs> I know that you have that impulse to go full
2: victim. Oh yeah. But well, and I've you... been there, you know, like I spent, yes. I had to spend the time there that I needed to spend to realize that I was, you know, at sick of it. You're a warrior.
0: Yeah. Yes.
2: And Thank you're you. also
0: very Plutonian. I mean, you have a lot of tight, Angles to Pluto. Are you your looking chart.
2: at? Are you looking you know, at my chart, I, girl? Right you know I
0: keep your chart up every time we have I a conversation. Know. I've got your chart up, but uh, and that's that's true, to listener. For every person I ever encounter, <laughs> I've got your chart up so I can try to understand you. But what I'm trying to say is that you are not afraid of depth. With so many aspects to Pluto, you are just a person who is very willing to go into the underworld. And you described it so clearly when you were like, "Oh." I never lost myself. This was mm-hmm. always you, 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 you have this marvel now for the rightness of it all. But like the myth of going into the underworld and experiencing the darkness for the curiosity of it, you yeah, none of your choices, however harmful they were, and certainly unpleasant, took you from yourself. You mm-hmm. you you remain whole. And I love that, even though yeah. I, I was impatient with you for. <laughs> <laughs> for, for being so accountable.
1: <laughs> it's true that responsibility is freedom. Responsibility mm-hmm. is the key to becoming healthy and to living a free life, to be free. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And I will say that now I can eat fermented gluten. No <gasps> problem. Like I I forgot
0: that's one of the other things you freaking right. celiac. Yeah. What?
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> And I think like, well, the eczema was a big part of that expressing through the skin. And um, I worked with a craniosacral therapist who just like consistently called me on my BS of retreating into victimhood and and assured me that, you know, she could see me on the other side and that it was beautiful. And um, I knew that I could trust what she was saying because she had been there. And she shared her story with me and I could see how beautiful her life is. With the underworld, I was obsessed with Persephone as a kid. Obsessed. I was like, wife of death, sign me up. <laughs> I think I, I can't acknowledge the the gifts that I was given that I bring to these situations. And I also just have to continually sing the praises of my matrilineal line for for holding me and coming into my dreams and bringing people to me and answering my prayers and helping me treat my body as an altar to them and to the sacrifices that they made for me to be here. Thank you for your questions. I really appreciate y'all doing
1: this. Thank you, Olivia. That was amazing. So powerful. Thank you for sharing your story.
0: Once again, thank you to our audience for listening. And we hope that you will subscribe to our Substack to stay abreast of all of our latest updates and our latest up- episodes as they drop. We do have a paid option. We would really love your support. It helps to maintain the energy that we need to go through the the recording and editing and advertising of this podcast and uh, so we would really appreciate your sub- su- support whether you're a free subscriber or on our paid tier and I also want to say once again that if you have a story of healing then we would really love for you to get in touch with us our email is podcast at gmail.com you can reach us on instagram twitter threads uh, notes facebook Um, And we'll put all those handles in the notes. So get in (laughs) touch. Thank
1: you.